This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only. You should not construe any information within it as legal, tax, investment, financial or other advice. Nothing contained within is a recommendation, endorsement or offer to buy or sell any securities. The hosts and guests on the show may have positions in some of the companies discussed. Make sure to seek your own independent professional advice before making any investment decisions. Trolling, trolling for 10 baggers. Trolling, trolling for 10 baggers. <laughs> Hi, thanks for tuning in. I'm Joel. And this is Sam. And welcome to Trawling for Ten Days. This podcast is about learning how to identify high conviction opportunities in small caps on the ASX. We talk to the experts in the space to help you learn how to speculate and protect your capital longer term. Our guest today is Warwick Rigger. Warwick's the Managing Director at Far East Capital with an extensive experience in junior resource companies and the Australian markets. He's a respected analyst, having worked in a variety of roles throughout his career, and he has some fantastic insights to share. Our discussions with Warwick cover a variety of topics, including his own background, some notable companies he's worked with, what's changed in the markets over time, and some of the things which always seem to stay the same. This discussion was recorded in late February 2019, so bear that in mind for the occasional mentions of specific companies or price movements. Warwick, thanks for joining us. And perhaps we can get started with a bit of a history on what got you interested in the markets. Yeah, well, I first got interested in listed shares, securities, when I was a 12-year-old. I just started high school. I came home from school one day and I saw an annual report for TUIs sitting on the table. And I recognised TUIs because of the beer ads they used to have on TV. And I asked my father what he was what this was all about, and he explained to me the concept of owning shares in public company, you know, having thousands of shareholders, and and uh, the annual report was the way they reported back to shareholders. And I thought, well, that's a pretty cool concept. I had no money. My family isn't a family of wealth. But I thought I could be a part owner of Tui's or Caltex or Woolworths by buying some shares. So it appealed to my... Um, my capitalistic sense at an early stage. My father did warn me never to bother investing in the stock market because he always lost money. And so what I did was started off, uh, I picked 20 names of of companies that I recognize in day-to-day life that were listed. I started to chart those and I charted them for 12 months before I actually bought shares, but uh, I cashed in $300 worth of Commonwealth bonds to buy Tui's as my first purchase. And that happened to be in about September 1974, just at the time Gough Whitlam was destroying the Australian economy with uh, revaluation of the dollar cutting tariffs and giving equal wages to women, which put manufacturing industry under pressure. It, it caused all sorts of economic problems. And the stock market had collapsed. So I was very fortunate that I'd bought at the bottom of what was the biggest collapse in the stock market for probably decades. Um, But that's how I got started. And the more I did it, the more I became interested. Um, As a high school student, I used to have files on 800 companies. Um, it um, It just really appealed to me. And I could see... But if you got the investment decision right, you could make a lot of money. And that was the uh, 
that was the eye-opener. Obviously, you need a lot of discipline thereafter, but if you get it right, you can make a lot of money. Terrific, Warwick. Did you have any, was there any particular stock in, in that period when you were a high school student in 74 that particularly did a lot better, you know, that maybe bagged a few times um, or maybe over a longer period? Yeah, that, you know, I, I initially I bought stocks like Mount Eyes and Mines, North Broken Hill, um, Herald and Weekly Times. Um, I learned at that time that the mining shares were a very good vehicle to to invest in because they were cyclical when you were when you had depressed commodity prices the shares came down a lot there was negative press it looked like the world was ending but I learned at an early stage that's exactly when you buy and even though I was advised that mining shares were more risky I actually found that it was you could make more money with mining shares than with industrial shares because mining stocks are cyclical. They go up and down with commodity prices. But industrial stocks, when they go bad, it could be because of a fundamental flaw in their business that they're never going to recover from. Uh, it's it's uh, cycles are longer with industrial stocks. If you get them right, you can make a lot of money. But it takes a long time. And was there a certain point where you decided this was a career path you wanted to pursue? Yeah, I went. I was actually groomed to become a, a politician. I did. The, I grew up in Canberra. I did the classic degrees of economics and law with with finance and accounting, and that was the path I was heading on. But at the same time, I was heavily involved in 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 the markets. At eight o'clock at night, when I was at uni, I put my university books down and spent the next three hours studying the market and company announcements. When I was at uni, I was, I was managing funds for a number of other students. Uh, I tried to set up a unit trust fund, but I had less than a million dollars under management, and so the trustee companies wouldn't deal with me (laughs) so I did a I I, I did I did something which was a little bit innovative I did a uh, synthetic unit trust fund by creating a company that had unlimited liability at that time that was if it had unlimited liability you could buy the shares back but limited liability you can't so I created the first unlimited liability company in the ACT so that that taught me a lot about fund management at an early time and, and the the psychology and the risks of managing other people's money. Uh, but when I was uh, actually at the end of first year law school, I looked at the people around me in the contracts class and I thought, I don't want to work with these people. I finished the law degree, but um, I didn't particularly enjoy it. I just wanted to get out there and make money. And so what did you do after you finished university? When I left university, I joined Hammersley Iron on the graduate management program because I wanted to get into the inner workings of a mining company. I wanted to really understand how they operated. Um, As it turned out, I only stayed there for 12 months because it was rather boring and it was a bit like a public servant private enterprise. And I sent a letter to 17 brokers 
giving them nine bullet points as to why they would uh, lose money if they didn't give me a job. <laughs> and it was it was a hard sell, but the uh, Jackson Graham Warren Partners saw saw something. They offered me a job, and uh, I flew back to Sydney, and I've never looked back from that day. Well, it sounds like a bit of perseverance and hard work really paid off. So the analyst position that you moved to Sydney for, was that the sort of role where you're just deep diving and digging into different stocks on behalf of a brokerage firm? Yes, that's right. And and publishing, you're writing your research. Back in those days, it's very different today. You could sit down with a company, be it with a geologist, with be the managing director, and you could really dig into the details of the company that you're not allowed to do now because ASIC would claim that was a secret private briefing and everyone should be available, have that information available to them. But the level of understanding and intimacy that analysts used to have 30 years ago is much greater than they have now. And analysts were much more valuable back in those days because they could actually give investors some real insight into the way companies run. Today, it's all guesswork and promotion. And so what stage there did you move on from um, working for, for someone else, I suppose, to doing your own thing and um, setting up your own your own business? Yes. Yeah, what happened there was I'd, I'd been around for a few years. I had my head down. I was, I was, I'd been working for oh, about two years' time. And at the end of the day, I was actually searching for quality. Um, I wanted to improve my reputation all along. I wanted to get better. I was approached by uh, Macquarie Bank in the early days. I went through all the psychological tests and, you know, you have to do six hours of tests to make sure your brain thinks the way Macquarie wants it. And and I got offered a good job there. And I thought, well, this is good because this is going to a better reputation firm. But I only lasted there for three days. Oh, wow. What happened there? Yeah, I just felt like I was 10 feet underwater and suffocating. They just, it was too formal, it, it uh, was too structured, uh, whereas previously I'd worked at firms that, that really the only criteria is you made money and you, you did it honestly. And if you could do that, you were let go, but there was too much structure for quarry. And I, I thought I was going, it was just going to be a very embarrassing exercise, going somewhere for three days and then walking away. But the opposite happened. People said, at least you had the, the the balls and the intuition to figure out you made a mistake and acted on it quickly. So whereas I thought I'd get uh, criticised, people said, well, good on you. So I went back to the previous firm that I was at because they didn't want to see me go in, um, in the first place. But I still had a yearning to get better at my job. And, and I was approached by a company which was called J.M. Bowyer. It was about the 28th largest broker in Australia. And within a very short period of time, County NatWest bought control. It threw a lot of money at top quality analysts around the country. Basically, this was the first high quality research firm to hit the markets. And within 12 months, we went from the 28th biggest uh, business rider in the country to number one. And in those days, brokerage rates were good. Institutions were prepared to pay for the analysts' work. And we did almost no corporate work, which is the complete opposite today. 
you can't make money on brokerage rates. You can't make money on research. You have to do corporate deals and everything revolves around them. Back in those days, we didn't need to make corporate deals to be probably the most profitable broker. Um, and there was a real sense of pride and camaraderie amongst analysts. And it, they, were, they were the glory days. But after five or six years there, the gold sector started to turn down. My specialty area was gold. Um, it was getting a bit boring. Um, I reached the pinnacles and I was looking for new challenges. It just, I, I didn't, you know, I suppose it's a bit like uh, in, in government issue, in opposition, it's pretty boring when you're in a bear market in your sector and you don't know how long it's going for. You've been there and you've done that. I moved on and I technically, I um, I was, yeah, I, I did, went off and did a bit of corporate work for six months, but I just was uninspired by what I saw there. The manager of the corporate department at County NatWest, there was about a dozen people in it, and he said at a meeting, he said at a meeting of all the uh, employees there, you know, we've introduced a new cost recovery system, and and if we ex execute it properly, we should be able to get 110, 120% cost recovery back. And my ears picked up at that. That sounded like it could work. So I said, I said, how do you do that? How do you actually you get 110% cost recovery? And he said, well, if you're doing photocopies for a client or you've got phone calls or putting on time, you just add a bit more. You just put on an extra 10% or 15%, whatever you think you can get away with. And I said, really? Is that honest? And you could hear a pin drop in the room. No one said anything. A week later, they retrenched me. Wow. Um, and not that I was unhappy to go. I, I, I didn't enjoy it there. Um, you know, I'm a very ethical person. The fact that I questioned the morality of the business they didn't like and they saw that I was going to be a troublemaker because of that. But I'm I'm very happy to have said what I've said and I would always say it. You've got to be honest in this business. And well, I'm sure that was their loss, Warwick, for NatWest. Um, I just want to pick up on that turning point because you've mentioned this a couple of times now. Is it fair to say that this was a turning point that led you to, to working with Andrew Forrest? Can you, can you tell our listeners a bit about that? Yeah, sure, yeah. Well, when I left County NatWest, one of my clients at the time was Andrew Forrest. He was trying to set up a $100 million gold fund, and I was allocated him and was working with him. And I rang him up, and I said, look, I can't work on this project anymore because I've just been retrenched. And he said, oh, let's meet in the Royal, Pub Royal Hotel in Paddington tomorrow, and yeah, let's talk about it. So I met him at uh, 5 o'clock the next day in the pub, and he said, let's set up a new company called Far East Capital, and let's be a specialist corporate bank, investment bank to the junior mining companies. You can do the research and the analysis. I'll do the, the dealing and the selling, and uh, let's have a go, and, uh, and, and we can be 50-50. And I said, yeah, that sounds all right. That sounds good. And uh, yeah, everyone told me not to do it. They said, you're crazy, you're mad. Um, and I said, well, you give me something, you, you offer me something better and I'll, 
I'll think about it, but um, but it sounds a fair thing to me. Andrew and I were partners were for five years. We sat outside by the barbecue at the very outset, and Andrew said, let's have a five-year plan. We're going to make X million dollars each over the next five years. And my eyes rolled, and I thought, yeah, that'd be nice, but you know, we live in the real world. It actually worked out exactly as we planned. We made that much money and some along the way. Um, that partnership ended after five years because he wanted to go and run Anaconda Nickel out of Perth as CEO. He wanted me to be CFO. But I didn't want to go back to Perth and I didn't want to be a CFO. Besides, I enjoyed the markets that much that I didn't want to be a single-purpose company. So he went off to run Anaconda. I bought him out of Far East Capital. And he's gone on to make a few billion dollars more than I have. Um, and good luck to him. So uh, the Andrew Forrest experience was was good. I learned a lot from him. Uh, you know, I'm sure he learned a bit from me as well. But I think what he's achieved since then shows that he was a very capable person. He just needed a bit of discipline and direction. And, and I think I helped him along that path and he's just excelled. Thanks for sharing that story with the listeners, Warwick. I think uh, it's very interesting the fact that you are seen by many in the industry, whether that be at conferences and events. There's many number of attendees will will often come up and talk to you because of your honesty and integrity in the industry. And I think that's obviously a testament. Suffice to say, though, I think the listeners or anyone would be really interested to who might have been a mentor to, to help you along this path. I've had some some good mentors, but my father was definitely my greatest inspiration in terms of morality and ethics. I say that my parents didn't give me much except, in, you know, nothing in terms of money or opportunity, but they gave me an extremely solid set of morals and principles. And, and I refer back to, to them. My father was a, a senior bureaucrat in Canberra. He advised ministers and prime ministers on various various matters and he was very modest. If you asked him what he did, he'd say he was a clerk, he worked for the government. But it wasn't until after he'd retired that I caught up with some of his friends that they they held him in very high regard as a as a as a true professional, highly principled public servant. But my father would never have told you that. Um, and you know he his intelligence and his ethics uh, are very instrumental. You know, fathers and sons sometimes don't get on. But with me, every minute that I could have with my father was a learning experience. And, uh, you know, we we got on extremely well. And that, but um, anyway. I understand you're a director of some companies and have been of others in the past. Are you able to share what it's like being on the, the board of management for a company and perhaps any misconceptions that people might have about what that role entails? Yes, yes. I've, I've been on uh, boards of oil explorers and producers, uranium companies, um, a number of companies over time, more on the corporate side. It was interesting. But I think that you, you, a good analyst, a good operator in the markets 
it, it's a very different hat to being a director. As soon as you go on a directorship, you've got obligations, legal and restrictions. Um, as an analyst, as a, as a freelance, you've got so much more freedom. But as a director, you're bound by the Company Yates Act. Um, being a director is actually not an enjoyable experience. It's certainly not a way to make money. It's assumed by so many shareholders and authorities and people of influence that if you're a director, you're sitting there looking for an opportunity to steal money and you can't be trusted. You know, there are a lot of directors that you can't trust. It's actually easier to get a directorship of a, a public company than it is to get a driving license. There are a lot of people that want directorships like a, a medal on their chest, a, a, an achievement. They think they've got it made if they've got three or four directorships and they can get thirty, forty, or sixty thousand dollars a year by turning up at meetings, and then they're on Easy Street. Well, they're exactly the sort of people you don't want on the boards because you know they're a waste of time. Um, but being on boards, you know, it's a pain. My strongest skills are, uh, are things that I can't use. You know, it's market savvy awareness, the ability to to job a market, to create depth in, in shares, to write research, all that sort of stuff. You can't do that if you're a director. Thanks for that, Warwick. Thank you for some really good insights. Do you have any suggestions based on that, I suppose, on some of the principles maybe on how someone from outside a company can assess a board and its management? Well, I, uh, for quite a few years, I've been a, a mentor to a lot of CEOs that basically get into that position for the first time. Um, uh, again, there's no there's no training for that position, and it's very hard. If you've got a good chairman who works well with a CEO, that's a great combination. Um, but from an investor looking outside trying to figure out, well, you need to get a feel for how much the board members do participate. Are their board names there just because they are names or do they really engage and, and give it some attention? Uh, people who get a chairmanship because the name looks good, but yeah, that's one thing. But does the CEO, does the company get the benefit of the experience? If it doesn't, well, it's a waste of time. The there are certain you need to see what other boards, the directors are, that are on. Quite often, people have got two, four, six board seats. See what other companies are involved with, and whether or not they've been effective and successful. If they haven't, well. It, it sort of doesn't say much for the, the company that you're looking at. If they've been involved with successful companies, that's a good start. Qualifications. Well, it sounds like an old rule where you follow the people that have made money before and, and you back winners. I mean, is there, yeah. I mean, without sort of trying to, do, to name people too closely, if you're not comfortable to, is there any sort of names or, or some stable horses that you would back and, and punt on again? Or, I mean... I guess that's what we're sort of trying to think of in terms of the, the odd for those for those mums and dads, and I know you're really keen on on giving them a, a level playing field. How do they find those people? Like where where would they even start? I guess that's sort of where we're trying to sort of find out for those listeners. Yeah, 
there's no really manual. You need to speak to people who've been around a while and had their eyes open. But say if you're going into the gold sector, any company that Nick Georgetta is involved with, you just put your hands down, you know it's going to work. Um, he's a doyen of the gold industry. When I met him, he was just a metallurgist. But there's an example, a, a, a Josh Pitt company. Josh doesn't really go on boards anymore, but he has a, a big influence and he takes big positions. You know that 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 it's going to be a high integrity. Uh, the level of success that's achieved, there's an element of, of serendipity because of geology, but those sort of characters are good. Um, Peter Cook is another one in the gold industry. He's Again, I met him when he was a geologist and he's risen to the task quite well. And um, You know he's going to do the right thing. Um, there, are, there are a number of very good blokes out there, but what you've got to do as well is, is realise that these guys don't deliver on demand. They deliver according to the business environment in which they operate. Commodity prices, time frames. That's when you come down to investing. Most of the people who play the junior sector are not genuine investors. In fact, um, yeah, they're, they're traders. And too many investors, especially those that you see frequenting hot copper, their concept of a good director or a good CEO is someone who pumps the share price. So they can, so the shareholders can sell out on use flow and make trading profits and, and move on to the next one. And there's a real misalignment of the principles that make it a successful company in the way directors behave and what shareholders are looking for. Um, and, you know, for any director, what I advise them, any CEO, well, you need to have your share registry aligned with your corporate objectives and your timeframes. And that's the way you build confidence and you have more stability in your share price. But if the share price is, is not volatile enough, well, the traders can't make money out of it. So you've got conflicts of interest there um, between trading and investors, and it can be frustrating at times. Yeah, very good, Warwick. Um do you have any view sort of where we are in terms of the cycle? I think just coming back to what you said at the start about you've made very significant money, you know, backing commodities when there's been people have been bearish, you know, when there's blood on the streets. I do remember one of your notes in December being very poignant um, from Far East about the fact that the bull market is over. I mean, there's no doubt in my mind, if you listen to a few different commentators, we're certainly late cycle, but what have you been doing? In the last sort of couple of months, have you been, you know, buying? I mean, maybe you can talk a little about the the one two one conference that you've just come back from as well. Yeah, that, the one two one conference was. There's a lot of good information, a lot of good companies and projects coming through, but no money. The the big weakness is is lack of money. What what the, the nature of the market has changed? It's become more volatile. Um, it turns around aggressively as, as, as FOMO strikes in or fear, whichever is happening. Um, the, the 
In terms of where markets are, the US market is the one which is topping. It's been topping for the last 12 months, and there's so much manipulation by institutions and vested interests that it, it you see a battlefield there. People that following economics and logic think the market should be going down. If it goes down, people lose money. Um, you know, we're, we're, we're not going to see record highs, new record highs from here. It'll turn down, but it, could, it always takes longer than what you think you know, um, to do that. In terms of our markets, we'd been basically in the, in the mining sector going down since roughly this time last year. Christmas Eve was a critical point, just doing my weekly this week. The low point for um, the markets was Christmas Eve. The oil ordinaries in Australia has risen by about 26% from Christmas Eve to now. The oil and gas sector is up 35%. I'm talking indices. The mining and metals markets are up, uh, yeah, I think roughly 25, 30% over a similar time frame. But a month ago, if you predicted that was going to happen, um, people would have laughed at you. Um, what you've you, you've had a, a, a different markets. The, the, the mining stocks that have gone up are the real ones, the producers, the income earners. Money's flown into that um, very aggressively, and a lot of it's driven by the iron ore problems with the tailings dam collapse in in Brazil. BHP, Rio, and Fortescue have all powered ahead, and they've dragged a lot of things up with them. But at the other end of the scale, the junior stocks, um, you know, at best you can say for most of those, the selling has abated, but there's no there's no appetite to go into and buy into them. And, and one of the reasons for that is there's not enough volume or depth. You know, if you're playing around with $20,000, that starts to be significant in terms of turnover a lot of these stocks. There are there are currently of the six hundred ninety nine junior stocks that put in three Bs, appendix three Bs, ten of them have got less than a million dollars. Twenty one percent of them have got less than half a million dollars in the bank, and that's an awful lot of companies that are going to be out there looking for money or go broke. Um, and I think that the need for the junior end to keep raising money. Um, and they all need to spend at least $2 million a year to, to show any sign of life. The, the markets are showing a disinclination to keep trusting the management of these companies and keep on putting up money. Um, my, my recommendation, my advice going out this week is some of these companies will be good, but where you've got stale bulls, companies that have failed and they've gotten to the position where they've got no money, it's because they've done something wrong or their projects just aren't going to cut the mustard. And, you know, there, there really needs to be at least 100 companies go under just to get rid of the noise and the distraction. Normally you'd say when the leading miners power on 10 and 20 and 30% and people start to make good profits, 
the money will trickle down to the junior end. I think that's less and less relevant now. Why would people who are based more on fundamentals throwing the cycles as well, but why would they suddenly become risk-preferring and go down to the little stocks where it's very to manage large amounts of money anyway? It's really punting. Um, but... Uh, I was just going to say that's really interesting for, for us as punters because I think certainly amongst the we talking that we're hoping that there's some trickle down, but what I'm in those smaller companies so that, that we can you know start to see some of those go on. But what I'm clearly hearing from you, Warwick, is and certainly coming back to what you've just said before, is is, is back some of those sort of majors that might be producing um, that actually have leverage to a commodity price that's doing well, whether that be gold, um, that are actually producing or turning a profit. Um, and, and really concentrate on that sort of mid-level market cap as opposed to, you know, particularly people that haven't really covered themselves in glory. Yeah, if you, particularly if you want to move any, you know, like some hundred thousand dollars around, um, you need to do that. And look for the new stories. The, the beauty about gold is there will always be new stories coming through. Um, if you If you know a little bit about geology and, you actually look at the underlying facts rather than just the rhetoric. Um, there's a few new stories coming through, but the new horses don't have stale bulls that will be looking to sell on any sort of recovery. Um, and that, they'll start to come through the system. If you hang on to your portfolio of non-performing stocks, um, yeah, they will recover at some point. You will do better, but are you going to do better if you're in a, a, a better vehicle that's actually got some upside rather than just a recovery factor. Uh, to um to go on extend from that a little bit, I guess. Do you have any views? You talked about cycles, and I mean, I guess irrespective of where we are in one at the moment, do you have any um tips or experience on how to manage your investments through those cycles? Yeah, very simply, you can never go wrong with selling when everyone else is buying and buying when everyone else is selling. You, you know, most people when they they, they follow the money, um, most people will miss out on buying the value in the bottom 20% of, of movements and they'll never get out within the top 20% at the other end of the scale. They, they basically go for the middle ground. I think that one of the reasons why I developed the sentiment oscillator was because you need an objective uh, big picture view of the emotional state of the market. We can all have done our analysis and think these are good stocks, this is going to go against the trend or this is not going to fall as much as everything else. But the reality is when the markets turn down, everything comes down and quite often it's the better quality stocks that come down faster because people can actually move volume in them. Um, little stocks will gap down on smaller volume because it just dries up and you can't move volume. The, um, it sounds simple. You play the cycles and you always make money, but how many people have got the courage to buy at the bottom of the market, which we saw in you know, late, this late uh, Q4 in 2018? How many people have got the courage to buy? How many have actually... Um, got the cash still there. I think that 
if ever anyone says, oh, it doesn't get any better than this, well, that's exactly the time you should be selling. Um, you can't you, you, you can't afford to be a believer and, and think the market's going to keep going. And when volumes are high and people are buying stock, well, you've just got to keep milking the cow and take money off the table. Very interesting insights, yeah. I guess just going back to some of the early discussion you had, work about analysts and roles in the industry, do you think in your time in the markets, what have you noticed has changed a lot and what things do you notice just stay the same over time? Well, the volatility has increased. One of the functions of lowering brokerage rates was it increased the volatility. Um, you, brokers had to do that to make income. Um, the volatility now is, is enormous. I think there's the, the two, the decline of the research is, has been a, a big tragedy. The continuous disclosure requirements uh, have had undesirable, unexpected consequences. In you know, companies have got to keep bringing out announcements. Um, often, they're forced to bring them, them out prematurely, where a prudent um, company would not bring them out. For example. If you do one or two holes and you get a fantastic draw result, as Orinoco did some years back, um, the stock price doubled on the first drill hole. But a company would look at it and say, oh, you know, we need to drill a few more to put this into perspective. And they need to drill a few more. And that first hole was anomalous. So the price doubled and then it halved and kept going south because of continuous disclosure. Um, what you've got is a market now where with shareholders demanding use flow because they like to respond to it, that plays in with premature announcements, incomplete announcements and misleading announcements because it's all about pumping the share price now rather than giving a proper perspective. You might find a company will come out and announce a really good gold intersection or two or three. And that's all we'll talk about. But if you go through the other 40 holes that have been drilled, you know, it's basically all crap. Um, the stock, you know, stock exchange announcements seem to be designed to pump share prices rather than give a, a true perspective. And that's a problem. With, with research, an analyst role being basically gazumped by the ASIC, you know, you have your private briefings. When you release research, it's got to go to everyone equally. You can't give it to your best clients. Uh, they've socialised research and they've taken the skill out of it. When companies come around and present now, they give you PowerPoint presentations. You know, for a mining analyst like myself, it means nothing. They're cartoons. I'll say, well, bring the sections I want to see the sections, the downhole intercepts meter by meter. I want to see the geology and I want to get a three-dimensional picture of this, this structure over the 500 metres or 700 metres of strike length. And they'll say, well, we can't give you that because we it's, it's not public information. I said, well, make it public. Um, but that would involve 
such large amounts of information going out there that it becomes impractical. So what ASIC would rather do is is um, deny an analyst's ability to look at it if they're interested. Um, and they, they're dumbing down the market. Um, you know, someone's prepared to go and put the hours of work into doing the analysis and get a, a correct opinion. You know, do they get an advantage? Well, they've got a skill base. They invest in that skill base. It's a capital asset. If they're prepared to go to that effort and they get an edge over someone else, well, that's an economic return on their time and, and their skill base. It's got nothing to do with preferential information because if you would show that to 99 100 investors, 99 of those investors wouldn't understand it. But the analyst that can understand it, who can get some benefit from his skill base, he's not allowed to do that. And he's not allowed to pass that information on to investors. You know, once upon a time, when announcements came out, you'd say, well, we'll see what the analyst says. And the analyst would come back with an intelligent, reasoned comment. But that really doesn't happen anymore because it's, it's all about moving the share price. It's not about making the investment decisions. It's really uh, hurt the industry, I think. Yeah, I guess not to make it sound too bleak, though, I suppose, <laughs> going back to what you mentioned before, do you do you have any um, suggestions on first, first places to start out? I guess if people are wanting to get involved and where they might start some reading to get a, a good perspective and set themselves on the right path to finding good information and good people to follow? Yeah, on a simplistic basis, if indeed our markets are driven by news flow and information and, and increasing hyperbole, then you need to see which companies are best on the promotional front, who are using um, whatever methods they're using to get the message out there. Are they creating a level of excitement? Because that's what drives share prices. That's really as good as you can do now. Um, when, if, if you're a skeptic, for example, and the company brings out some good results, you may wait and you may see the stock rise 20% and then you might say, mm, well, maybe there's something here. Um, as, the, 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 as the news flow brings in more buyers, then you get a bit of momentum, you start to see an uptrend and you think, well, well, I'll get on that now. That is as legitimate a way of making money as anything in the markets um, as, as you can get now. But that's recognition that it's driven more by psychology, FOMO. Um, it's recognition of what we've got. The best way to look at this sort of stuff objectively is to do some sort of chart analysis, whether you do them yourself by hand or whether they have a, a computer-based one. The, the, the chart in theory on the close of the day takes into account all available information. That's your signal. Um, it You don't need a lot of technical skill to be able to analyze what's happening with markets and money flows. You look at the volumes, you, you look at trading patterns through the day. Is someone touching the stock up at the end of each day or, or 
conversely knocking it down. So I, I think, I you know, I do a lot of, I've got a knowledge base, a skill base, but I could probably make just as much money, if not more, by just doing the charts because then I wouldn't be thinking about it too much. All I'm doing is looking at the markets. To be really successful, you need to be bipolar. You need to be able to know whether something's worth holding as an investment and whether it's going to grow over one or two or three years or is it just market movement and hype? A lot of people come along to me, recently they've been coming to me on uranium and saying, which uranium stock should you be buying? And my comment is, well, I wouldn't touch uranium. Um, this company or this company, they promote themselves really well. It looks good. Uh, but uranium as a, as a thematic is, is dead in the water because it's missed its opportunity in history. That doesn't mean to say that if enough brokers or particular not going to go for a run. So you, you, you've got to have a, a grounding in fundamentals and reality when you're trying to pick um, a stock that's worth investing in. But at the same time, um, you've got to recognise that that's not what drives share prices. It's in the short term, it's the promotion and the news flow. So many times I say to people, well, look, this project won't work. I've, this is the third time over 40 years that I've seen the project come up. It fails every time for these reasons. But the people who are promoting it now or the people who are considering investing in it probably don't remember it from before or they weren't around. And the promoters obviously promote the good positive aspects of their projects, not the bad ones. And those bad aspects will eventually catch up to you. But I say to uh, investors, well, look, it's not going to work, um, but don't let that stop you from trading and making profits on it. Yeah, an example is Sarah. Sarah's got this graphite, you know, largest graphite mine in the world. Um, there's a lot of things that I, I won't say on the record about it, but it, it's, it's been a very sus company over time. It was never going to succeed for a lot of fundamental reasons, and it's, it's struggling. It lost about 30-odd million dollars cash flow last quarter. It's bleeding cash, and it's still not working. Nevertheless, the shares went from a price of 40 cents to, I don't know, 7 or $8.00. And it's back down to about a dollar twenty or a dollar forty now. There's an awful lot of money that you would have left on the table if you didn't play the rising market. So it's like sleeping with the devil. You you, you want to make money, you get in there and you do it, but don't believe it and don't be left holding the bag at the end of the day. That's that's exactly right. I mean, you always took the words out of my mouth for it because that was all that was ringing in my back and my mind was trade the trade and. The trend is your friend until the bend in the end, you know. And I think if you've, if you've got sort of targets and you've, if you've got a trade in place and you've hit them, you've got to be selling. You've got to be selling. Um, yeah. And yeah. I think Joel and I, when we went to recording with our first episode, we talked about sort of what, what we're actually trying to achieve and that's, and that's really talking to people about speculating, not investing. Like we are, you know, um, trying to have a punt here. So I guess I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you, Warwick, um, what would be your your ten bagger, or we'll even take a bag or two if you had to put a if you had to nail yourself on the cross and say what um 
what stock he thinks for, for this year or on that matter. And it can't be first graphite because I do want to finish up and, and, and uh, yeah. hear what, you, what, 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 what your company's doing. Well, I think probably XOR, or it's a company in so the code for that Cote one. It is EXR. It's only a fairly recent company. Um, ERX it is XOR Resources. Right, ERX. Yep. That you know. Um, when I decided that was a good punt, it was about roughly half the price it is now. It had a market capitalization of fifteen million and had fifteen million in cash and it just picked up eighty percent of a project that had some very good drill results in Cote d'Ivoire. Since then they bought out more good drill results. I've had a, a session at one to one with them. And if there's one company that I saw that you could conceivably See it going up five or ten times over the next year or two. That's that's one of them. Um, it uh, quite often, you know, it's a big call to say something like that. But with gold stocks, you can do that. You're turning, you're turning goat pasture worth maybe ten bucks an acre into gold deposits that could be worth millions of dollars an acre. And uh, it, it requires continual good drill results. Things can go wrong. But, you know, I think that's very good. There are other situations out there that I think should be three to five times more than the current share price because the geology supports it. There's a company called uh, Golden Rim, which has got 1.4 million ounces of gold in Burkina Faso and its market capitalization is about seven or eight million dollars. You could easily see that at three times the price, but it requires a change of corporate management because where companies, you know, companies come in and see me and I quite often ask the question of the CEOs, what's your most important role? And they say, finding more bodies. I said, no, nah, try again. They come up with something else. No, nah. very few people say it's keeping the company funded. That's what a CEO, CEO's got to do. If, he, if you haven't got the money, then you can't do anything and you die. Um, survival is the first challenge for these companies. But, uh, you know, you do get anomalous situations like um, Pacific American Coal. Its market capitalization is about four or five million. It's got a couple of million in the bank. It's got a 300 million tonne coal deposit, which other professional analysts have, have come out and said, you know, the, the share price shouldn't be four cents it should be 20 to 30 cents but because that company is not promoted very well not many people know about it so the message doesn't get across but at some stage that'll be worth an awful lot of money coke coal's pretty valuable you'll get lots of situations like that the first thing you've got to do when stocks aren't performing they look really cheap you've got to then figure out why what is wrong is it the management Um, does it smell is it lack of cash do how accurately have the resources been calculated that's when you need a bit of skill to to plot up and and go further but but in terms of the stocks that go up 10 times often surprise you might think they're worth two or three more 
times in, in, in good markets. But when they go up as a 10 bag, it's usually because there's been a continual improvement of the fundamental or the geological situation. It's, it's not that they're worth 10 times straight away. It's a change of perspective as well. So it's, 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 you need something out of left field to actually achieve that full 10 bagger, I think. Very good, Warwick. Very good. There's a few tips there for the listeners. Um, I suppose just to final cover off, you you actually are chairman of First Graphite, or is it First Graphene, Warwick? Do you want to... Um, First uh, Graphene, take, yeah. That's yeah. what I thought, I thought. Do you want to take us through what they're, what you guys are currently up to? And Yeah, that that that's a true example of an investment as opposed to a trade. Uh, I got involved with that three or four years ago when I was leaving um, Canaccord. I have spent a lot of time commenting on other companies and the way they run things. Um, I'd like to actually, as my legacy, show that I've actually learned something and, and have the ability to convert that to growing a serious company. What we've got with First Graphene is the most advanced graphene company in the world. I say that uh, um, as my opinion, but there's a lot of facts to back that up. Graphene is is going to be uh, ubiquitous in 10 or 20 years' time. Everyone's going to want to have graphene in their products because it makes them better. By adding less than 1% graphene to polymers, elastomers, plastics, concrete, uh, fire retardants, whatever, often you need less than 1% by volume to get 30, 50%, sometimes 100% improvement in performance. It's an additive. Um, it's not what graphene is in itself. It, it's got so many um, superior qualities, thermal dispersion, electrical conductivity, flexibility, strength. It's, it's, it's really an extremely amazing material that when you're dealing in nanoscale um, and you get the, the combination, whether it be with the polymers, whether it be centering with aluminium or whatever, it makes what you originally start with a whole lot better. The trouble with graphene is that everyone's been taken in by the hype. You see lots of things on the internet about wonderful new things you can do with it. But the delivery of what it promises has been sadly lacking because all the work that's been done by these companies is basically being done in laboratories and on small scale and bench scale and no one's addressed the the supply issue, the quality issue. What First Graphene has done in the last couple of months is announced the biggest sale of, of graphene materials of anyone in the world. It's only 2,000 kilograms, but at $200 a kilogram, that's worth over half a million Australian. It's the, it's the biggest that anyone's done. Now, what, what uh, First Graphene has done, they developed a process using a superior raw material. They own mines that supply uh, 97% grade graphite, which is four times higher than the grade that anyone else has got in the world. 
that makes superior quality graphene with very high yields. So the costs are low. Grade is king. If you've got 25% graphite, your costs are going to be four times the cost that first graphene will be, even if you can use it through the same process. So whereas you can sell for 200 bucks a kilogram, production costs are less than 40. That's a fantastic margin. But what the company is focused on, that's been criticized for under promotion, but that's because I haven't wanted the company to be an over-promiser and under-deliver. So we've been a little bit quiet up until now, but that'll change. What we've done is we've spent nine months um, ensuring quality control. We can produce, we can supply up to 100 tonnes per annum of graphene of high quality, repeatable quality, which no one else can do. That then means that industry can go to a supply and say, right, I'd want to use the benefits of graphene in my products. Now, um, how about it? We've got about half a dozen customers that we're either selling to now or we're drawing up sales contracts. They've all actually approached us because they've been watching graphene and wondering how they can participate in it, but where do we get it from? Well, you can get it from First Graphene now. Um, that's the big thing. It, it's meeting providing the supply curve and I can see by the end of this year with the sales book that we're working on we could quite possibly be cash flow positive break even by December 2019 and growing thereafter as you get your beachhead as the first few companies start to use graphene and start to experience the improvements then everyone's going to be Ringing. We're actually inundated with inquiries now from polymer and elastomer um, manufacturers that want to add graphene to their product. It doesn't sound glamorous, but it, for the for a plastic, let's just call it a plastic. We can make plastics as strong as steel while still having flexibility by putting graphene in there. For many products like where, where we've got a sales order to sell it to the mining industry for liners on um, metal surfaces in, in shovels and trucks and things like that to protect it from abrasion and wear, you get 100 to 500% improvement in the abrasion resistance by putting graphene in there. The beauty about going for that, while it's not glamorous, you can sell big volumes and there's no government requirements, no approvals necessary um, for those individual products. The low-hanging fruit for first graphene is is uh, into these sort of areas, anything made out of composites, um, whether it be mixing with carbon nanofibers or, or polymers, or it, it doesn't take much to put them into automotive tyres, for example. But it's happening now. Um, first graphene is, it, they've crossed the threshold. It's no longer a concept, it's a commercial reality. And with the first mover advantage, uh, that's very important. There's no tradable market for graphene. You have to be dealing with individual customers 
So it's an industrial product. There'll be, you know, by this time next year, there'll be 10 or 20 verticals that we're selling into, which requires relationships with customers. But, um, you know, it's, it's, it's pretty exciting. This is a growth curve that's going to go on for 10, 20 years at least. The more that we do, the more skill we get, the more ability to extend it to other products. So it's, um, to, to me, um, I'm very pleased with the way the operation guys are going. The, they're just getting on with the job and they're making more progress than all the other companies out there are saying, wow, we can make graphene and then they stop and relax because I think they've got it made. You've got to make it fit for the purpose and in industry. You've got to finish it the right way. You've got to be have a consistent product that you can warrant. And we've achieved all of that. So obviously you can tell I'm a little bit passionate about this, but I you know, I think um it's gonna make a lot of money over the, the next ten years. Very good. A ten year ten bagger. Warwick, thanks very much. That's T code F G R first graphene. Warwick, thank you very much for your time this morning. It's, you've been very generous. Um, I think listeners and uh, we'll have learned a lot from, from today's episode. So um, thank you once again for that. Yeah, it's my pleasure. I, I'm at that stage of life where I am mentoring more. If you have uh, listeners or, or clients that want to know about anything that I talked about, I'm, I'm more than happy to invest a bit of time with those sort of people who, who want to learn. Um, That's where's, where's the best contact? Where can they get in contact with you? Well, in the first instance, they should email me at wgrigor, G-R-I-G-O-R, at fareastcapital.com.au. Um, you should, if you, if you email me, you should give me some background as to who you are and, you know, where you're coming from. It, it makes it easier for me to to respond knowing what you're looking for. Um, but, um, but yeah, I'm happy to help the wheels keep turning and help people make money decisions if I can. Well, thank you so much, Warwick. That's a fantastic note to finish up on. And just to reiterate there, I think you've got your weekly, weekly is it newsletter that you publish your thoughts in? Yeah, it, it goes out. Most Saturdays, sometimes if I've got nothing to say, I'm not going to publish it. But it doesn't cost any money. Um, that's that's the, the main thing. I'm not trying to make money out of it. I, I'm just trying to um, provide a bit of a shining light through these murky markets. And on that note, listeners, that's the end of today's podcast. Warwick did reference to shining a light through these murky markets, and that is exactly what we are out to do in our trawling for 10 baggers podcast really just trying to shed some light through the spec market that is the asx um thank you again for listening to us uh, and we look forward to having your company don't forget to leave us a rating on itunes uh, and reviews are always welcome thanks again music in this episode is called 10 minutes by green monday and from twinmusicom.org remember the contents of this show is not financial advice If you have questions or need more information about your own circumstances, make sure to contact a professional financial advisor.